Hi, welcome to this Physicians Weekly's podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles. I'm your host for this podcast. And today we've got some great interviews as usual. This is Physicians Weekly. Wow, it's hard to believe it's already episode 104. Today we have two guests and two topics, and the first one we're going to start off with is Dr. Gregory Lipp from the University of Liverpool in the United Kingdom. He's the senior author of the American College of Chest Physicians, or CHEST, and he recently is the senior author on released guidelines on anti-thrombotic therapy in arterial thrombosis and thromboembolism in COVID-19. Dr. Lip is extremely well known as a cardiologist, has an H index of 245, which is quite amazing. And we're thrilled that he's taken the time to explain the 11 evidence-based recommendations that this guideline contains. And it's meant to really improve the risk evaluation and to assist in determining the course of treatment for these COVID-19 patients. Next, we speak with Dr. Nicolas Girard from the Curie-Montsouris Thorax Institute at the Institut Curie in Paris, France. We talk about the lung cancer research his team presented at the American Society of Clinical Oncology, which happened last month, June 2023, in Chicago. And the description of the advances of understanding clinical trials versus real-world evidence, which we see every day in the clinic, is so important to understand. But he does a terrific job in explaining it, and I think we're seeing some excellent results. So enjoy listening. Firstly, just thank you so much, Dr. Lip, for your time today. I really appreciate that. And I know that there are some new guidelines that were just published about the from the American College of Chest Physicians about arterial antithrombotic uh, therapy. Could you could you talk about why has this come up and is this purely because of COVID-19? Yes, uh, I think the association between the venous thromboembolism and uh, COVID-19 has been well recognized and numerous guidelines have addressed that. However, it was felt there was an unmet need, particularly in many patients who are at risk of during the course of COVID-19 develop arterial thromboembolism and how best to manage this. And arterial thromboembolism, of course, these are patients who may well, in the course of the, the acute illness, develop an acute coronary syndrome, uh, requiring a PCI and uh, intervention with stenting and how best to deal with that. Patients develop an acute ischemic stroke, what to do with that. Patients who are at risk of arterial thromboembolism, notably atrial fibrillation, uh, patients with peripheral artery disease, uh, you know, if they are hospitalized, and even if they are hospitalized as an ICU setting, as non-ICU setting with COVID-19, what to do in the context of their associated antithrombotic therapies. So, hence the American College of Chest Physicians convened the expert panel and produced this guideline, which is after review of the existing evidence. And I'm very pleased to see the final report, uh, which I had the honor and pleasure to be the senior author. Exactly. So it's congratulations on that wonderful output, because it's it's important, right? There's a definite unmet need and lack of literature. Were you able to fill some of those gaps in literature or at least identify where the level of evidence is adequate to be applied? Well, I think because the nice thing about chess expert panel reports and guidelines is that uh, there is a systematic review of uh, what literature there is. I suppose the starting point is there's no specific 
large randomized trials in those, some of those specific populations. You know, for example, if they're hospitalized in ICU with COVID-19 and develop an acute coronary syndrome, is there a big trial to actually address that? So, so we're dependent a lot on some of the cohort studies and sometimes extrapolation from some of the other evidence from non-COVID populations. And I suppose you could say it's also drawing on the panel's experience in those particular areas and it's a very multidisciplinary panel and hopefully what we have put together would be a useful resource for healthcare practitioners to be able to manage COVID-19 patients who are at risk or develop arterial thromboembolism during the course of their hospitalization or as we are seeing more and more now virtual wards and managing patients out in the community. Uh, we're currently at the moment, maybe you could say in the trough phase, but when the winter comes, well, who's, who's to know what's going to happen? Yeah, I'm afraid we're all a little bit worried about that indeed. So I'm, I'm curious that you just referred to, there's some prevention and prophylaxis elements to this as well. Could you discuss some of the key recommendations? Well, I suppose an example where there's prophylaxis and, and treatment, and, and let me just take atrial fibrillation as an example, because uh, firstly, it's sure. so common and associated with many comorbidities, and these are patients at risk of getting COVID-19 and also more complications associated with COVID-19 given the multimorbidity. If they're managed in a non-hospitalized setting, and if they already have atrial fibrillation, take an oral anticoagulant, then the recommendation really is to continue with the oral anticoagulation. Now, if they are hospitalized and develop with COVID-19 and develop new onset atrial fibrillation, well, if they're not in the ICU, maybe an oral anticoagulant will suffice. If they cannot take DOAC, then obviously vitamin K antagonists like warfarin with a good time and therapeutic range could be, could be used. If they are hospitalized and develop new onset atrial fibrillation, clearly therapeutic anticoagulation is required. Now, if they cannot take oral anticoagulation if they are if the patients are in the ICU setting, then it could well be require parenteral anticoagulation. But in when discharged, then one has to look at uh, the various factors related to the use of anticoagulant in the AFib patient, because if they have a chance vascular of two and above, well clearly they need long term oral anticoagulation afterwards and then perhaps evaluation by the AFib specialist on how to manage them subsequently. Uh, so that's one example where you might well get the prophylaxis on the existing atrial fibrillation and then being admitted. But of course, we have the scenario of being admitted with an acute illness and developing de novo atrial fibrillation. And that's a different challenge altogether, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but of course, we've covered the other, some of the other scenarios, uh, for example, acute stroke, for example. Uh, because the patient may, may be admitted with uh, COVID-19 and then sustain an, a, a sort of acute stroke event during their admission. Well, it's uh, clearly a urgency that needs dealt with. If they develop a stroke and then require revascularization, then that needs appropriately managed. However, it's also important that uh, if they need re canalization therapy, whether with thrombolysis or a thrombectomy, then the treatment is uh, given as with consultation with the acute, with a stroke neurologist as well. 
if they've had a previous stroke and had antiplatelet therapy but get admitted with COVID-19, well, general recommendation clearly is continue the antiplatelet if they can. And uh, depending on the particular setting, whether in hospitalized setting, whether in ICU or not ICU, prophylactic uh, low molecular weight is well required during their time in hospital. And what about periphery artery disease? Do you, I mean, that must be a, a unique subset of patients as well. It is, and we do have a chapter in that because uh, there are there are patients, of course, who have chronic peripheral artery disease and are taking antiplatelet therapies. And if they are admitted to hospital again, then uh, given the potential sort of risks of thrombosis with COVID-19 is to ensure that they also have, in addition to the antiplatelet therapy, possibly uh, a prophylactic dose of low molecular weight heparin. We will have some patients, of course, being admitted with peripheral artery disease or rather have peripheral artery disease, but develop acute life-threatening ischemia. Then that takes precedence again. That needs dealt with whether requiring a multidisciplinary team and a vascular specialist, whether or not there needs to be uh, acute revascularization. So I suppose you could say on one hand, there's the difficulties of uh, not having large specific randomized trials in the specific population, but at least as to on the on the basis of um, best evidence extrapolated from non-COVID scenarios and uh, and adapting it to the uh, COVID admissions, hopefully we can we have come to some useful uh, recommendations. Right. And, and probably to be updated again in the near future, because a lot of studies are ongoing. Can you discuss some of the results you're looking forward to seeing? Uh, well, there, there are some areas where we would be very interested to see more evidence. And I'll give one example of a trial, actually, which was has re- recently been published at C19ACS, which was on the basis of combined low-dose DOAC plus aspirin, because we know from the non-COVID scenario that in high-risk patients at risk of arterial thromboembolism, uh, low-dose rivaroxaban plus aspirin, uh, that was a benefit. Uh, this was the COMPASS and the ATLAS trials uh, on the hypothesis being um, underlying microtrombi. We conducted the C19-ACS trial to try and test that regime, but uh, you know there, there was there was difficulties getting enough numbers, and we eventually had to stop the trial for really futility. But you know, as a concept, should there be a resurgence? I think it's still a question that needs answered. Thank you so much. Do you have any final comments or, or recommendations for fellow physicians here? I suppose it has mentioned that we are now getting used to living with uh, COVID in the background, the same way as we have been living with influenza for many years. And I think this is a condition that is not going to go away. Uh, I think that's the the aspects that we recognize, with especially the more severe and the spectrum of cytokine storms and, and therefore inflammation and thrombosis. But uh, one thing is pretty clear. In the early days, things were pretty bad because of the risk or the high risk of thromboembolism associated with this condition towards the more severe end of the spectrum. So I suppose, should there be any resurgence then at least uh, in the patients at risk of, or who develop arterial thromboembolism, we now have a resource we can go to and try and get some best guidance how to manage these patients. Yeah, thank you so much. Those are very insightful comments. So much appreciated. 
Next, we have Dr. Nicolas Girard from Paris, France. He's going to be talking to us about extensive small cell lung cancer and it's how you can compare clinical trial data with real world evidence that we are actually working with in the clinic every day. It's very interesting stuff. Thank you so much for your time. So I wanted to ask you about some of the data that was presented at ASCO to place some of this context about small cell lung cancer and the new advances. And let's start off with the I'm Power 133 trial. Could you just give me a little bit of a background as to what was that set out to define and what were the results briefly? You don't have to give numbers. So the Empower 133 trial is actually a placebo-controlled phase three uh, trial that compared uh, a combination of atezolizumab plus standard of care chemotherapy with platinum etoposide uh, versus chemotherapy alone in patients with extensive stage uh, small cell lung cancer. And this is a very new concept in this disease because it integrates only four cycles of uh, combination of immunotherapy plus uh, chemotherapy followed by a maintenance with atezolizumab alone. So we are reducing the number of chemotherapy cycles and we are uh, introducing the maintenance uh, in this disease, which was not done uh, Previously. This trial demonstrates benefit with the uh, addition of immunotherapy to chemotherapy uh, in this setting. Uh, this is a reduction of the risk of death by uh, 24%, uh, moving from 10 months uh, with chemotherapy alone to 12 months with uh, the addition of atezolizumab. And this is a matter of long-term survival. What we see with immunotherapy is a relatively small increase in the overall survival in terms of median. But if we look long-term, we have long-term responders, we have long-term survivors, uh, which was not the case uh, with chemotherapy alone. I see. And so in this abstract presented by Lionel Falcero uh, from, from your group, and you're the senior author of that paper, I know that you guys looked at the French cohort of patients in the Clinitizo study, real-world study. Could you discuss the background for that, why this was felt to be necessary? Well, uh, it's always important to look at real-world uh, data. We, obviously, the, the Empower 133 uh, trial is a, is a large trial, but uh, it's always selected patients based on yeah. good performance status, relatively limited uh, uh, burden of disease, probably. Uh, so we never know whether this these data, these results will be reproducible in a, in a, a larger population of patients. So this is clearly what we wanted to do. It was actually required by the French authorities to check this reproducibility. So uh, uh, how we, we do that? It's an academic study, so it's independent from the, the sponsor of uh, the Empower 133 uh, trial. It's a large cohort of more than 500 patients, and we looked at all these consecutive patients who received atezolizumab plus chemotherapy in the setting of the expanded access program that was set up in, in France. So very interesting data, and uh, these data actually show that uh, in, a, in a large group of, of patients probably with uh, prognostic factors uh, that were different than the ones reported in the landmark clinical trial, uh, we are kind of uh, showing that we are reproducing the results of the clinical trial in a real-world setting. 
Excellent. I noted in the patient characteristics that over a quarter of the patients had brain metastases. Uh, could you comment on that specifically? Well, uh, it's always interesting to, to, to see that. Uh, in clinical trials, uh, patients with brain metastasis could be uh, unmoled, but brain metastasis had to be pretreated with a limited uh, treatment with steroids, uh, no symptoms, this kind of criteria that are uh, common to many clinical trials. But when you apply, this regimen in a, in a real world setting, you are obviously treating some patients who have some, still some symptoms, maybe more steroids, larger brain meds. So it's interesting to see that we have a higher number of patients with brain meds and probably more severe brain meds. But this is uh, reflecting the reality. Still, we had a, a majority of patients, uh, nearly 90%, who had uh, a good performance status. So. But this is the case with immunotherapy. We know that yeah. immunotherapy beyond PS1 is, is obviously with limited efficacy. And what about patients who required concurrent radiotherapy? Were there special, to, were you able to do a, a sub-analysis on those well, patients? Th this is one of the, the uh, learnings of, of this study. Uh, that, uh, actually, a significant proportion of, of patients had uh, radiotherapy during the induction uh, treatment with uh, immunotherapy combined with chemo. It was palliative intent uh, radiotherapy on bone meds, but also uh, whole brain uh, irradiation. Yeah. Uh, we also see in this court that some patients had uh, thoracic radiotherapy in the setting of uh, significant or major partial response. We had some historical data as a CREST trial that demonstrated that even in extensive stage small cell lung cancer, if you have a very good response to induction treatment, whatever it is, it was chemotherapy at that time, there was a benefit in terms of overall survival okay. to do radiation on the primary tumor. And uh, actually, some patients had major response and uh, they, they received radiotherapy to the primary uh, tumor. All right, so this sounds like an overall very beneficial study, and, and it sounds like the French authorities should have been impressed by the, the, the reproducibility of this data. Is this going to change your practice? Well, it, uh, it shows that it's, it's a new standard of care, combination yes. of immunotherapy plus chemotherapy. What we are also able to show, and this was not in the clinical trial, is uh, the description of the subsequent treatments, what to do in the patients showing disease progression at some point. Can we re-challenge these patients with chemotherapy? The answer is we yes. What we can do with uh, immunotherapy? Should we maintain immunotherapy? Should we discontinue immunotherapy? This is still an open uh, question. We can see that even in the setting of second-line uh, treatment, we may have a significant proportion of patients, more than half of the patients, who will have a control of the disease, which is always a challenge uh, after first-line treatment in uh, small cell lung cancer. Indeed. Thank you. Are there any other comments or insights you would like to share? Well, very interesting to see that we uh, also uh, presented at the ASCO meeting the results of the Lurbiclin uh, trial yeah. with Lurbinectedine. This is second yes. line. So it's yeah. a kind of sequencing of real-world evidence data. And Lurbinectedine is probably one of the most promising options uh, after the failure of first line in, in, in this disease. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. 
thanks so much for listening to this podcast. It was kind of a mixed bag of lung cancer and clinical guidelines, which also had to do with lungs, of course. So I guess that was the undercurrent uh, theme that I was uh, not really admitting. Anyway, I hope you learned something and thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy. Thanks for listening to Physicians Weekly. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly.